Rita, I'm glad you came back. I promise not to talk about you tonight. <laughs> we're all made up. <laughs> oh, it's been fun. Can I get a witness? Tonight we're going to talk about Paul. And if you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 26... It's amazing when you really look at Acts and when we, we talk about the giving of the Holy Spirit and then the church takes off, the history of the church. It's interesting, we, we think of Paul as this great theologian and, that understood the doctrines and everything else and he wrote all these letters. But when you look at his life, all Paul did was three times the, the book of Acts records. He tells his testimony over and over and over. That's what he knew, what he had heard and seen, and that's what he shared. And in, and in this third time that he tells his testimony in 26, over in, in verse 16, God reminds him as he's standing before the king, now get to your feet, for I have appealed to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. Tell the people that you have seen me, and tell them what I will show you in the future. We'll go to the next slide. How many of you have spent much time watching Judge Judy? Have you done that? Now, it's, it's interesting with Judge Judy. You know, I think she's mean, but anyway. I like Judge Brown. But anyway, I wouldn't want to stand before her. But it's interesting that you can't have a witness unless there's a trial. And only a judge can call a witness. Only a judge can swear in a witness. And when you think about it as our Heavenly Father as a judge, not the angry person, not, God's not as angry as Judge Judy, but God's up there And he calls us to witness because we're in the midst of a trial. And when you call a witness, the witness comes up, they lay their hand on the Bible, and they swear to tell the truth and to declare what they've seen and heard. That's a witness. And that's what God has asked us to do. To swear to tell the truth of what we have seen and what we have heard. You know, it's it's interesting that during this time of COVID, excuse me, COVID, that um, there is such a need for the church for us to tell our stories and to witness. Do you know after 2020, when COVID hit hard and we were all jammed up in our homes and in our basements and every place else, that after some of the the demands of COVID were lifted and we had some freedom of movement. That 10,000 churches closed their doors never to open again. That 30% of all church attendance never returned to church. Boy, what a need for a witness today. And, and I've had a lot of people say, well, you know, what, what can I witness about? I mean, how do I witness in the midst of this global pandemic? How am I supposed to witness 
when there's so much unemployment and it had affected me? How am I supposed to witness when we've had several loved ones who died prematurely because of the pandemic? How am I supposed to witness when I'm going through all this stuff? But I want you to know this is what the world needs to see. Instead of panic, the world needs to see peace. And the world needs to see that even though we have lost a lot of things, we haven't lost our minds. And that's what the church, excuse me, that's what society is looking for from the church. It's been said that a faith that has not been tested cannot be truly trusted. Wow. A faith that has not been tested cannot truly be trusted. When we look at the background of what's taking place in 26, I kind of want to bring you up to this. Paul's in prison. He's in Caesarea. And he finds himself, he appeals as a Roman to go before Caesar Nero. And he finds himself in the court of Caesarea. And in verse 1 to 26, where it says, Then Agrippa, that's referring to Agrippa II. Agrippa II was the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod, the one that went out to try to kill all the baby boys, to kill Jesus. Herod, the one who went out and uh, beheaded James, tried to kill Peter. And it's interesting that when you get to Acts chapter 12, God is so angry with Agrippa I. I love this story because of everything that's going on. It's a really cool, gross story because God's so mad that he uses a whole bunch of worms in his intestines to, to, to eat him up, and he dies. What a wonderful story. He must have had a bad case of COVID. Um. After he dies, Agrippa I had three children. So he had Agrippa II, the boy, but then he had two daughters, Beatrice, and the other one's name is Drusilla. Sounds like something on Cinderella. But Drusilla and and, um, Bernice, what had happened was that Agrippa had become this uh, authority. He studied a lot of history. And actually, it's accredited to him that he was an authority over all things Jewish. All their customs, everything that went on, their beliefs, and so forth. He was really into history. All of a sudden, after he becomes king, his sister, Bernice, at 13 years old, decides that she's going to marry her uncle. After she marries her uncle, several years pass by, and her uncle dies... And so what happens is, when she's 20 years old, she marries her brother, Agrippa II. So we have this weird relationship between Agrippa and Queen Bernice, who are here to listen to Paul give his testimony. That's where we're at. Just some wonderful, weird stuff going on. When we look at Paul, I I, I wrote down a couple things that we see. Paul goes from being an assassin that kills Christians to being a church planter. Man, what a drastic 
way to look at things. And then he becomes, Paul is so upset, he goes to the Pharisees and he gets a letter that allows him to go out and drag moms and dads and, and couples from their homes and put them in jail only for Paul to find himself in jail to write letters to share the gospel that we still use today in our impacting our lives. One of the things that I want us to see is that in the next slide is that God can change anyone. If you go to the next slide, uh, a few years back, um, because I spent so much time in San Diego and that prison was just a mile and a half from the border. So a lot of the, the immigrants that were um, incarcerated in the ICE facilities, Immigration Customs Enforcement facilities, most of those are private prisons right along the border, they were being released back into um, Mexico when they were released. And so they still had some needs and so forth. Well, I want you to think about this. So all of a sudden they are released and they're taken in a blue van, they're taken to the border, and they're released, and they're still in their jumpsuits. Some of them thousands of miles from their family, and they're dumped there. No money, no food, no clothing, nothing. And what was happening was all the sex traffickers were targeting them. And so there's this great need to, to, to help out in that area. So I started spending some time in, in, in Tijuana, uh, Hispanics call that TJ, or Tijuana, and um, on on the east side over there, kind of near Baja, over in that area, they have what they call the Americas, where a lot of rich Americans have moved to Mexico because it's cheaper to live in Mexico than it is San Diego, and they just drive back and forth because San downtown San Diego is only 12 miles, and so you have these Americas, and then right next to the Americas is what they call Zona Norte. And Zona Norte is all controlled by the cartel. And, and I heard about some ministry going on, and I was doing some work down there. So, you know me, I thought, well, I'd be kind of cool to go down there where the cartel are. And so I'm going down there, and in the Zona Norte area is a picture of Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is the largest brothel in northern and southern hemisphere. The largest brothel. The second largest in the world. They have over 5,000 customers a day there. When you see the, the cars move up and, and, and all the taxi cabs, it's like a slow-moving train. They're just constantly moving like this. And men jump in and out of the cars as they move just like a train. As you get up to this area down there, there's about 10 blocks long. And, and for several blocks, you just have women standing on the street. And then there's a couple more blocks, and you just have men standing on the street. And then you go a few more blocks, and you have transvestites standing on the street. And then down at the end, you'll have three or four blocks of just girls, children, standing on the streets. Down with this brothel. And, and notice we're talking about God can change anyone. While I was there, I heard about uh, a couple girls who are part of YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And one of the things that YWAM does is wherever they go, whatever the country they go to, especially in the darkest areas, the first thing that they do is establish a prayer room, a prayer ministry. And I heard about uh, a couple girls that were doing that, 
And so we decided to meet with them secretly, if you go to the next slide. And uh, he's going to keep this off the Facebook so they can't see and recognize where this is. But on the back side of that building there, behind that flag, is where this prayer room is. And so as the girls have been there praying and praying and praying, they felt led to establish a school for all the prostitutes' children. And so if we go to the next slide, this is just an empty lot. Now it has a trailer parked in it. It's just an empty lot between two buildings. And they have a gate in front of it. And they started a school for the children of prostitutes. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And until one day, they received a visitor from a man from the cartel. He was an enforcer. And he came to see what was going on. And he didn't say a whole lot. He said he just sat there and watched what was going on. Uh, His youngest daughter was attending school there. What nobody knew was that he was dying of cancer and didn't have very long to live. One day, his daughter goes home and says to her daddy, Daddy, if you come to school, my teacher will pray for you and you will be healed. And him being a pragmatist thought, what do I got to lose? He didn't believe in Jesus. He didn't believe any of this stuff, but he was so desperate to live, to be there for his family, he thought he'd show up. So he shows up, and the girls are really taken back because they know who he is and what he's about. And he asked them if they would pray for him. And so they prayed for him, and he left, and he took his daughter with him. Several weeks had gone by. And then one day, he shows back up, and he has all kinds of supplies for this school. And that's where that trailer comes in. All kinds of supplies for this school. And then he starts bringing all this stuff and unloading it and everything else, and he's smiling, and the, and the girls come up and ask him what's going on. And he says, well, I just want to bless you. And they said, Why? And he said, because I don't have any cancer anymore. Now, what has happened in the meantime is that this enforcer for the cartel is now, and he's, he's growing. It's a little different there. He's the enforcer for the school, and nobody messes with the school. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Nobody messes with the school. God can change anyone. He took an enforcer called Paul, who were dragging people out and killing them and putting them in jail, taking parents away from their children, leaving them at home to fend for themselves. And he changed that assassin too. When, as we go on, I'm going to look at a a few things. I want to see three things that we're going to talk about with Paul's life. We're going to talk about the tent. We're going to talk about the transformation, and we're going to talk about the task. I want to talk about the tent. There were two things that, that Paul, Saul, was a master of. He was a master of the Torah, studied under Gamaliel, and knew, he, was a, he describes himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. 
a Jew among Jews. And he knew the Torah. The other thing that Paul really knew was he was a master tent maker. An incredible tent maker. And he goes back to that over and over again to support his ministry as, he, as he's going about his missionary journeys. Um, I forgot I better thank. I want to thank Isaac for allowing us to use his tent this evening. <laughs> thank you, man. I'll make sure you get it right after service. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, I just had to do that. Now, I want you to go back and think in the middle of COVID. Now, you know, we had our grandkids and stuff. Now, how many of you parents have had resorted to this? You know, you're just so tired of being around your kids. You can't go anywhere. They're everywhere you go. You can't get rid of them. So what do you do? We did this. We popped this tent up in our backyard. And we put so much junk inside their tent. We put toys. We put food. We put a battery-run TV in there. We stuck everything in there and told them, this is your life. You know, stay in there. And we zipped them inside. And they had a blast. That was their reality. You been there? You know what I mean? You know, we used to be upset at teachers. We hated teachers. They didn't know how to teach our kids. Now we love teachers because we want to get rid of our kids. And we send it back to the teachers. So much so, people are giving their stimulus check to the teachers now just to take care of their kids. But anyway, we stuck our grandkids in there and said, stay in there. And that was their reality. They had a blast. But what was interesting about this tent is, even though this was their reality, it wasn't real. Because the whole world existed outside the tent. That was the real reality. What has happened to us as Christians, we have become so stuck in our tents, in the things that are going on in our lives that we play with every day, that we do every day, that it has become our reality And we forgot the bigger picture of the world around us. We forgot all about it, about what's going on. What's interesting is, in our tent, this reality that we think is real really represents the lie that we live. Because the world is bigger. And you think, well, how in the world does this have anything to do with Jesus and the Bible and everything else? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15... Jesus appears to Abraham, 15.5, in Genesis. He appears to Abraham, and he's telling him this story. And Abraham is in his tent. And he tells him, your descendants are going to be many. And you're going to have a kid. And Abraham says, no, I ain't going to have no kid. I might have a kid with my slave, but I'm going to have a kid with my wife. I'm old. But that was his reality. That was Abraham's reality. He couldn't see the big picture. And in Genesis 15, 5, it's interesting what the Lord tells him to do. He says, get out of your tent. This is what he says. He says, the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. He had to get Abraham out of his own reality, his perceived reality to get him out of his tent so he could actually see how big the world was and see the stars and see if he could count them. That's what happened to Paul. Paul was this tent maker. He thought he had it all figured out. What the reality was about, what this Jesus was about and everything else, but the world was so much bigger that God had to call Paul 
away from this mastery of tent making to become a witness. He had to pull him away from all of that. The second thing I want to look at is the transformation. When we look at this transformation, let's start in verse 12. And, and Paul is sharing his story in verse, or chapter 26, verse 12. It says, one day I was on such a mission to Damascus, armed with the authority and commission of the leading priests. About noon, your majesty, as I was on the road, a light from heaven brighter than the sun shone down on me and my companions. And we all fell down. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is useless for you to fight against my will. Or uh, King James will say, kicking against the goads. And Paul says, who are you, Lord, I ask. And the Lord says, I am Jesus, the one who you are persecuting. Now get up to your feet, for I have appeared to you to appoint you as my servant and witness. When, when does transformation begin? That's a, that's a good question. Is transformation, because we celebrate transformation, and, and the way we celebrate transformation, we think it is this moment. This moment in time where I'm going one direction, then all of a sudden, within a second, boom, my life has changed and I'm going another direction. And we use that analogy all the time, talking about you know, turning around, you know, walking away from sin and walking towards God and everything else. And we talk about that was our transformation. No, that's when you receive Jesus. Can transformation be something that has been happening to us our whole life? Do we go from one moment then to the next moment? Then to the next moment? That God is working on us to transform our lives, to bring us to him. And that's exactly what is happening to Paul. And maybe the analogy that we could use is pregnancy. I wouldn't, if I had to describe pregnancy, I wouldn't regulate pregnancy to describe it as the birth, the delivery. That's what we celebrate, right? But that's not pregnancy, that transformation of that child starts a long time ago. And within that transformation, there's sickness sometimes. There's pain. There's growing. And there's stretching. And this transformation is moving and moving to the point that when there is delivery, we say, bang, there's the baby. That's transformation. Transformation started a long time ago. Because God was working on us. And that's what happened to Paul. And I want you to see this. Could it be that God started working on Paul a long time ago when he started killing Christians? Could God have started working on Paul a long time ago when he sat there and he watched them stone Stephen. And he listened to Stephen's sermon and tells them to forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Could it be that that's when this just transformation started working? You started working on him and started working on him and started working on him until there's this birth, this, this deliverance, if you will, this, this event, this celebration that took place on the road to Damascus when the light shone down and things changed. 
Could it be that Paul had to be goaded? Could it be that Paul had to be worked on all this time, all these things that he experienced, so that when this event, this inner, this encounter that he had with Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit finally made sense to him? When did God first start working on you? God first started working on me when I was in the eighth grade. And when I was in the eighth grade, I moved to Mountain City in the middle of my eighth grade year, right in the middle. And so what was taking place prior to that was um, we lived in uh, Arcanum, Ohio, and um, we had a lot of things going for us. Dad had two businesses. He had an insurance business, and he had a plumbing business. We were living pretty good. We lived on this, um, I forget how many acres we had. We had animals, we had cows, we had horses. Um, we had plenty of money. We had a motor home. We always went on these vacations and did all these things. And I remember, always remember, Dad always had this Archie Bunker chair. You know, Dad's always had this chair that they always sit in. And it had these pockets on the side, you know, and they're just stuffed full you know, of, of Bible stuff and Bibles and handbooks and all this other stuff. And Dad would always be, when I got up and came to breakfast, Dad would always be there reading. And a lot of times when I came down, if I came down really early at the chair, Dad would be on his knees turned around with his hands on the seat praying. And I remember one day we, we came down and was getting ready for school. And so Dad came in, we were eating breakfast, and he says, I have an announcement. So we're, we're, eating, we're eating. We're not paying a whole lot of attention. Dad says to us, he says, God told me that we're supposed to move to Mound City, Missouri. And I didn't even know where Missouri was, let alone Mound City, you know, with my geography. I lived in that county my whole life. My cousin's first cousin, Tom, just lived down the road. He was in my class. All my relatives, grandparents, everybody was right there. And dad made the announcement, didn't think much of it, just blew it off. I went to school. Good for dad. So I go to school and come back, and, and we have this family meeting. And dad announces it again, that we are to move to Mound City, Missouri, because God now is talking to dad. And being a junior high kid like you are, smart, smart math junior high kid, I said, Dad, don't you think if God wanted us to move to Missouri, he would talk to all of us? <laughs> now, don't that make sense? It didn't to me. Why didn't he tell me? He told you. And we go a couple days, and, and Dad comes back, and so he announces that he's going to sell his businesses. Well, one of his business, the insurance business, sells right away. And all of a sudden, he can't sell the, the plumbing business, the soft water business. He can't sell it. It's not going. It's not happening. So being the junior high kid I was with all my intelligence, one morning I said, hey, Dad, don't you think God's trying to tell you something? We're not supposed to move. And so I go to school, and a couple of days pass, and and I come downstairs, and Dad's praying by his chair, and then he comes in, and he says an even crazier thing that God spoke to me. He comes in and announced to us that God told him why his business wasn't selling. 
He said he didn't ask enough money for it. Did you catch that? He didn't ask enough money for his business. I knew dad lost it then. And so he told him what he was supposed to do. So he ups the price on his business. I just blew it off, you know, Bonnie and I. And we just not paying a whole lot of attention because the business hadn't sold. Nothing's happening. We come home and dad's all excited. And he announces to us that he sold that business that day for the price that God told him to raise it to. You know what happened to me? That weekend, we loaded up the U-Haul truck, took that $5,000 back in the late 70s. That's a lot of money. That extra $5,000 that God said to raise it to, and he sent that check off to a ministry, and we drove to Mountain City, Missouri. And I find myself at this little town, country school, and everybody knew my name by, by the time it was lunchtime, and I couldn't figure that out. Because <laughs> I was going to a big school back in Arcanum. That's when God started transforming me. When he tells Paul, stop kicking against the goads, it's an interesting thing. It's uh, it's basically a a livestock term, farming term, where as they use the cattle to plow their fields and and to to pull equipment and stuff like that, they'd become stubborn like everything else, and they would take this really, really long stick that was really sturdy and sharpen the end of it, and when the animal would not move, they would take that stick and jam it into their hawk. Well, when they would do that, a lot of times the animals would just kick right back because they didn't like it, and they would kick right back in that stick again. Till they finally got the point that they started moving forward. Now, I want you to see this. When we live a life for Jesus, and we're in his will, when people look at us, it's like our lives are kicking everyone around us in the goads. Hey, wake up. I need your attention. It doesn't doesn't make any sense. It's it's kind of frustrating the way you're living. And we're kind of goading people to understand that God is more important than they are. That's what the whole story about Paul was about. God saying, Paul, I am more important than you are. And he's kicking against the goads. It's interesting this last part where it talks about the task. And if you look at verse 17. So verse 16 we read twice and it says that Paul is to be a witness. That God called him to be a witness. And after he's saved and he's a witness, notice what verse 17 says. And I will rescue you from both your own people and the Gentiles. Yes, I am sending you to the Gentiles. 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Now notice, as soon as Paul is saved and God calls him to be a witness, he immediately gives him an assignment. Gives him an assignment. When we come to Christ and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8 says that we shall receive the filling of the Holy Spirit and we shall receive power to do what? To witness when we're saved. But what we failed to understand is God has immediately given us an assignment to go share our story with other people. You have an assignment. That's really the fifth question. We've been given questions for help you capture your story so you can share your story with others. The fifth question is this. Who are you going to share your story with? That's your assignment. Who are you going to share your story with? I kind of ran through tonight's message and... And so I don't want to weird anybody out. It'll be okay. Okay? But I wonder if tonight, if we could just take a little time, and I'm just so excited about all of those that have taken the time and, and shared their testimony. But is there anybody else here tonight that would be willing to share their testimony? And I can wait. That's okay. This is a safe place. This is okay. This is where we practice. And we learn and so forth. But over and over again, I, I heard people commenting, wow, I didn't know that that happened in Peppy's life. What a powerful story. Took her 10 years to share it. How long have you waited for your assignment to just share what God's doing in your life? It doesn't have to be, you know, you say, well, I don't really have a a powerful testimony. You know, I wasn't a drunkard. I wasn't a prostitute. I, you know, I wasn't on drugs and all this other stuff. But you know what you were? You were lonely. You were unsatisfied. You were angry about life. You had circumstances that frustrated you. And then God gave you peace. What a testimony. Everybody can relate to that. Because not everyone's a drug addict. Other people can relate to anger, frustration. So I was... Just wondering, is there anybody that would be willing just to share a testimony tonight? Look, I got Mike, and then I have one right here. So the funny thing is, is that two nights ago, I woke up, and I just thought, Bruce is going to ask me to talk, and I just don't really want to do that. (laughs) And I really thought that. And then yesterday, I was here, and I thought, okay, he never asked me. He never asked me. So, um... I don't know when I was thinking about if he asked me to talk, what am I going to say? 
I thought, well, it's nothing, I don't know. I think that the biggest thing with me would be, um, so I grew up in this church since I was like two, the entire history of the church, so a very Bible-preaching, Bible-believing, so I always very much believed the Bible, knew who God was, and that was never a question. And in high school, I... I um, always just felt like, ah, like there's, there's more, I know there's more, and I just, I just didn't want to do anything with that, and I knew that I needed baptized because that's what you do, and I, I knew the reality of there is a hell, there is a heaven, and, but it just really wasn't it, and I finally, I finally realized, I guess, what the, what the difference was, was where the Bible talks about the demons, well, even they believe, you know, the demons, the demons know who Jesus is. The demons believe that it's true. I mean, they know the reality, but the difference is, is that the demons doesn't make Jesus Lord. They don't, they don't give him the Lordship and they don't follow him. And so that was the big difference. And when I realized that that was the difference, it just, it just changed everything. And that's, I think that that's a daily thing. Um, I know that, um, the, I don't know, well, the last 10 years have been, uh, probably a little trying, uh, has definitely shaken my faith. Uh, I have, I have, seven babies in heaven and three here on earth. And so that's all been in the last 10 years. And there was a period here where like, I just kind of quit talking to God and I didn't, I didn't pray. I didn't talk to him. I didn't do anything for over a year. And I just kind of just really hardened my heart. And I just remember thinking, Danielle, and it just got so bad. It just got to the point to where I was like, Okay, I, I know when I look back, when I just did things, when I submitted and did things his way, it was so much better. And I knew that that's, that's the way. And then I thought, oh, my gosh, I've pushed him away for over a year. I've refused to talk to him. Like, I don't, I don't think that this is, like, you know, then I was worried, like, have I pushed him away, like, forever? Like, is, is he away from me now? And so then I kind of started begging, like, oh, please, please don't leave me, <laughs> kind of thing. And he, he didn't. And then I just had to tell myself, that's the difference again. Like, it's just because you can submit and make him Lord one time, you have to choose that all the time. It doesn't, it doesn't become the forever. So, so I guess I just want to encourage that that's just something that even if you fall away from that submission, you can go back to it. And that is something that, um, the, t- the taking up your cross daily, I think that's kind of what that means. And I don't know if that's what I was supposed to say, but that's the only thing I came up with. I just want everybody to know how the Lord has protected me all my life. 
and I maybe wasn't even aware of it a lot of the time. But um, I was raised in a Christian home. My father was a Methodist preacher, and I saw things happen with my, my parents that was just perfectly wonderful. I remember my mother uh, made some visits with my dad. They'd go out and visit people in the congregation. And I asked my mother one time uh, what she was doing. And she said, well, uh, she was visiting with Bertha. And I said, what do you do? And um, it so happened that we moved to Fairfax later, and I established my home in the same home where Bertha Cox had lived. And this was his mother. This is the woman that my mother had visited. And, uh, and she said, well, I wash her feet. And I could not believe that. I mean, that's kind of crazy. And uh, so I found out that Bertha Cox had, had had a husband commit suicide years before. She was a widow all these years. And I still don't know why mother washed her feet, but <laughs> she just, she was an older woman and maybe she couldn't reach over and do it anymore. And um, so I've, I thought of so many things that the Lord has done for me. Uh, and I had my parents to set an example for me. But um, I want to tell you about all the times that I was riding horses and had accidents and and had fallen off and, and uh I can't believe it myself how many times I could have been gone. <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> Somebody else? Anybody else? Matt? Um. I, I had thought about doing this Sunday because I knew Bruce didn't have somebody to step in and uh, had an experience here. It's just a recent thing. So it's, uh, and mom knows about it because I came and complained to her because I was in deep depression. Um, just felt like my whole life was just crashing around me. And I've got an, another point to be made Sunday Alan's communion meditation about dreams. And, uh, of course, it runs in the family because it's his daughter. had uh, She'd had a dream, and I was in it. And she was just frantic to get a hold of me and tell me about the dream because she, she just felt like the Holy Spirit was leading her in some way um, and just wasn't sure. But she felt like it was important enough that we tried for three days so that she could come talk to me. And, and when she did come talk to me, I, uh, she said, well, I thought, well, maybe something going on in your life. I said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got some issues with my brother. I'm trying to, trying to help. That's, that's what it is. It must be issues with my brother. So yeah, I'm, that's, I'm sure that's what it is. And, uh, I was just in complete denial um, that it was me. And uh, a couple of days later, I Mike's a good friend and brother in Christ. And we meet on Sunday mornings at 8.30. And, and uh, 
basically just talk about our lives. And we know that God's there. And uh, he hears and he answers our prayers. We usually figure out it's time to start praying about 925 so we make don't make Lane too late for his class, you know. But, uh, and Lane always slips in there about 925 in time to pray. And, uh, of course, he got a load too. He's gotten a load from me several times. But, uh, but it took the Holy Spirit working through Jennifer to get to me. You know, I like to think I'm in touch, you know. I, I, uh, I'm in the Word every day and I'm praying every day. And, but yet life can get so overwhelming. This is why I didn't do this Sunday, because I knew I couldn't make it through. Um, there's another guy right there. Uh, but the importance of this that we've got going with the witness, telling your story, is we get to rely on one another. Like Lane says, Jesus in me, Jesus in you, Jesus in you. And I can trust that. And uh, I, I can't God sighting because that's the only thing that can explain the peace that came after Lane and Mike prayed with me. It all went away. That that molehill that I'd turned into a mountain that was going to crush me went away. And that's the peace of God. That's all it can be. So um, I didn't wet my pants or anything either. I, I think that's really good. So, But anyway, thank you. Anybody else? Yes, church had christian family but until the 70s when i went to a uh billy graham crusade had i turned my life over to christ and i went to some of his meetings afterwards and that's when it began i came home and told rita immediately i went right to her house and told her what had happened and then the policies moved in next door to us and they were with us for many, many years. And if there's an angel on this earth, it's his mother, Myra Jean. <laughs> and they immediately, John told us a story right away that God had told him to come to Mount City. Well, I wondered why, but I was so happy to have them as neighbors. And we had just moved from uh, Ohio here in the same area where they came from. So we had a lot in common, and we became very good friends. And uh, through their ministry, my ministry grew and grew and grew. And I don't have a lot to say because I've never had 
anything really tragic happened to me to, to stop me to, from having this growth. But uh, the Lord is, if you, ha if you have him in your life, it's, that's all that matters. And he got me through Joe passing away and my son passing away and gave me such peace. And he gives you peace, regardless of your situation, whatever it is. But uh, I love you, Bruce. Amen. Thank you. Um, well, I just have a, a story, um, and I can't remember who got baptized, but um, the my friend Jennifer, who started a ministry in Uganda, was here with me that night. You were here, Jim was here, and Jared was here, so I don't know. Who was that? I know exactly what you're talking about. Who got baptized? Maybe it was Angel. Okay. Okay. So, anyways, Jennifer, who was here, um, I was doing some training, getting ready to send her off to Uganda. And um, that day was super crazy. And we were um, in Maryville, and um, it was parent-teacher conference, like one of those days, 500 things. Um, and, like, the great hostess that I was, I had no time to feed her, so we went through McDonald's drive-thru. <laughs> and, um, but we were sitting in line in McDonald's drive-thru, and this guy came out of McDonald's, and he was so crippled that he was bent over, like, literally could not even stand up um, to just, like, physically demonstrate he stood like this. Like, that's how he walked. And we were just looking at each other um, with that look of two Christians of, like, we know what we're supposed to do. And so we whip over and park and get out and walk up to him. And we're like, can we pray for you? And, um, you know, you didn't know, like, if he's going to say yes or swear at you or, or what. And... Um, and he was like, okay. And so he kind of like scooted in his car and there was a gal there with him. And we asked him his name and his name was Craig. And so we prayed for him and um, for just quite a, quite a little bit. Then we went about our way, came up here, did, did our thing. And that was like in March or something like that. And then fast forward come Thanksgiving and my mom was at my house and we were cooking in the kitchen and um, I'm sure she was complaining about something <laughs> trash or something in my kitchen and there was cans and she was like rinsing them out in the sink and she was like well I'm gonna save these and take these home because we save these for my neighbor's son you know because he he's sick and they cash in their cans and I was like okay that's great and she said something about Craig and I just like knew and it was the like just that feeling of when you know you know you know and I just like turned around and I'm like who 
And she was like, oh, my neighbor, so-and-so, her son, Craig, he's, he had a stroke and he's had all this, you know, stuff and just started talking about him. And I knew that that's who that was. And it's just um, the way God works is so miraculous and our world is so big and so small at the same time. And so, you know, Craig's story isn't over, but how that he lives two houses away from my mom, this man, like that we would have never known who this was or anything that was at McDonald's in Mound City and Jennifer from Uganda. And we talk about her and we still pray for Craig and have been in touch with him and things like that. And He's better. He's not, of course, upright and whatever, but um, we still hold out hope for those prayers to be answered. But um, you just never know when you need to witness your faith. It might be in your testimony or it might just be in a behavior that we're called or in the obedience to pray for the sick or whatever it is. And how that even grew my faith and how this story, as I've told it over time, has grown others' faith. Um, I think all, all God's stories are great witnesses. So, Anybody else? anybody else ever get the feeling that when you're sitting in the chair and and Bruce says anybody else I'm nervous (laughs) but um, a few years ago um, fifth or sixth grade played flag football up at uh, Fairfax and um, um, we we, uh, you guys a lot of you guys remember um, Red Hall He was a classmate of mine. I've shared this story before, and it doesn't get any easier, but um, he was a wonderful classmate of mine, and um, I remember the time that he came, or uh, the news came to the school that he had cancer. And... uh, It was hard on everybody at that school and anybody that knew him. Very hard on his family. And um, us being young, it wasn't, we understood what it was, but um, we didn't fully understand, I guess. Um, But we went on to play football and um, came down to the very, very end. We had lost a lot, and um, my dad was a coach, and we had... (laughs) No, I'm, <laughs> no, I didn't mean it like that. But <laughs> I did not mean it like that. But um, we had lost a lot. We went through the losers bracket, and um, we fought hard. And it came down to the final game, and we had to play um, the West Nottoway Rockets. And um, they were they were very good, um, to say the least. We we were not. Um, we 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 had a good team, but. Through it all, I mean, the whole time um, we had red on our mind, and um, 
it was it was tough to get through that and um through the whole thing um i want to give dad the credit for this because it it made this story but um We had a cardboard cut out of a, a T-shirt, and um, we we didn't have numbers or anything, but we had jerseys, and we um, we wanted to play that game for it. And uh, through that whole game, um, like we would pray before we started, and um, any all that. But through that whole game, there was a feeling that I got, and. Um, I never shared that with anybody at the time, but there was a feeling of, I mean, we were supposed to lose, in other words, um, but I'll tell you what, we won that game 50 to nothing, and and um, I, I believe that was a God thing, that we prayed, I, I prayed the whole game that we would win, and I think part of that was Rhett in our in my life and our, our my team's life that um, that dad dad um, had a cardboard cutout of a t-shirt like I said he would stick that in the end zone and he would say guys do you look down there of course at that time the, you know the coach could be dad could be on the field with the cards and he you know we made the huddle and he said look down there guys that's Rhett in the end zone. And there wasn't a time we didn't score when we heard that. So, but I wanted to share that tonight. So, thank you. Thank you. I'm, come here, Parker. Come here. I wasn't going to share mine, but there's something I want to say about this that story too. First of all, I was a coach, and I take full responsibility for for every for, like for every every loss I had. <clears throat> and yes, we had to go through the losers' bracket, but they were a good team. But they had their hearts taken away because their dear friend, when we got a, a notice saying or a message saying that he's got cancer, and we went out there and we these kids they poured their heart out. And when I come up with that idea, maybe the kids thought it was ridiculous. But what was interesting was I would take time out and I would go down at the end of the quarter and we'd have to move because we'd be going, we'd be going the other direction. And there was one of the mothers that had come over and said, let us take care of that for you. When we move that down, we're going to take care of that for you. We're going to make sure he's in that end zone. And there was a lot of times, it was probably third and Long yardage. I mean, we and going through the losers bracket, we thought we'd never make it. But I would part that huddle, and I'd say, "Look, boys, there's red down there, just like he said." And talk about transformation that come over those kids because they went through the losers bracket, they won that, and they did it for red. And yes, there was people that before we'd started that uh, championship game that I'd had a uh, prayer written up, and they come in. And over the announcer's booth, they said, don't worry about it. We've got this taken care of. And they took care of that for us as well. And 
through it all, when we played them the first time around, we didn't get very good response from that team because they were so much better than what we were, and they thought, well, you guys will never stand a chance that they actually come over and handed us the game ball and told us, you guys played your heart out. So we were a good team, but you guys put it together, and you guys deserve what you got. So when he says they weren't a very good team, they were a good team, but going through struggles like that, and like a lot of struggles we go through in life, that when something like that comes up, it sets you back. But you know, God's still right there with you. And he's in that end zone waiting for you each and every time. So don't ever forget that. Anybody else? When Paul finished his testimony, the last there, um, Agrippa makes a statement. He says, you know, you almost made me believe. Paul didn't take that as a negative thing. He goes on to say the phrase, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. We talked about peace and what Christ can do in your life. The hardest thing that I ever did when I was a junior in high school was walk down an aisle up front to say that I want to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hardest thing I ever did. Heart beats fast. Have some anxiety and things like that. But this is the most important thing I ever did. Most important thing wasn't winning a state championship basketball game. That trophy never paid any of my bills in life. <laughs> never helped me out of any situation. But the decision that I made to come forward and accept Christ as my Lord and Savior did. And so what I want to do, and Steve's just going to play some instrumental music, or James... And what I want to do is spend some time praying. Paul says after his testimony that he's going to pray for those that he witnessed to. He's in the king's court. Other governors are there. Their staff are there. Their servants are there. And he's going to pray that the seed that he planted would take root. Sometimes when God asks us to share a story, it might take more than one story for somebody to get what God's trying to tell them. It might take a couple stories. But Paul describes it as this. He says, some people plant, some people water, but they're still telling the story. But God gives the increase. And so if, 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 a, if a few of you would come forward, some men and women, if they just stand up here, and Tammy will be up here, and I'll be up here, and we just want to pray with you. You can pray in your seat. Think of that fifth question. Who's the person you need to pray about that you need to share your story with? You can pray about that. But if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior in your life, 
there is a peace that surpasses all understanding that you can't figure out, doesn't make any sense. But it's almost like a, now I can deal with things. He wants to give that to you. And Philippians says that that peace will guard our hearts and our minds. Our hearts against wrong feelings and our minds against wrong thoughts. And that's the peace he wants to give you. So as the music plays, in a little bit, I'll, I'll close this out. But if I have some guys come up here and some women, if you'll come up here, we want to pray for you. If there's some youth, if you'll come up here, and maybe somebody wants to pray with you. If there are any kids, I loved coming into the dots and the children are up here. They were learning about the, the Lord's Prayer. And they're giving their prayer requests. If you want to come up here and pray too. So you close your eyes and I want to invite you to come and we just want to be up here and pray and encourage you if you need prayer. That's all it is. Just to encourage you. To invite you to come. You might say, Bruce, well, why in the world would I have to walk forward? Why can't I just stay where I'm at? Jesus says, If you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. You can't hide your faith. You can't hide your desires. Jesus knows them all. So we invite you to come. just ask that you will be with us.
fill us, give us everything we need to to walk where you want us to walk, to speak as we ought to speak, to love as we can love, to have compassion on those who need compassion. Father, we ask for healings. For those who are sick, we just pray that you bring healing in their lives, restoration. Father, you created us. You know every bone and ligament and cell in our bodies. And Father, we just, for those who are suffering and are sick, we just pray for healing, that you would bring restoration to those bodies. Father, we just pray for those who are struggling in their spirit with loneliness. Father, we we pray that you would just bring a friend into their life, a great friend. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would show up in a mighty way and that you would comfort them. Let them know that they're not alone. Father, we're so thankful for this church, for everybody here tonight. So thankful for their love for you, your love for us. So thankful for your forgiveness, complete forgiveness for eternal life, for a love I don't deserve. Father, we say thank you. Jesus, I'm thankful that you came to earth to witness to me. To tell me about what you've heard the Father say and what you seem to do. So thankful for that revelation. Father, I'm so thankful for those who took those stories and wrote them in a book for me to to keep and to hang on to. Father, help me to be faithful and read those stories to remind myself that your promises are true. They're complete. Father, I just pray for our children. I pray that they would grow in the knowledge of the Lord. For those who are here today in the church, that their voice would be loud about Jesus when they sit on the laps of their mother and father at home. Use their stories, Lord, to bring their parents to you. Father, I'm just excited standing here. Thankful for your peace. Thank you for tonight. So thankful for your presence that we can feel it, that we can experience it, that it gives us hope. Father, we ask these things in your precious son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated.